0: Welcome to the Brilliant Podcast. We live in a world where most stories are just variants of the same story. Good beats evil, cowboys and Indians, profits and loss. This story has been told a thousand million times, and the ubiquity of it is what I would call a great tragedy. A tragedy because of the consequences it has on our imagination and our potential for imagination. The Brilliant Podcast is an attempt to tell different kinds of stories, ones with complex moral plays ones that aren't so clearly stories, and ones that are of human size. Our motivation to tell these tales is a desire to see a proliferation of different stories, and not just the simple morality plays of popular culture, or the inverted, but otherwise identical, stories of radical men leave. We believe that a world of free people is possible. We call these people, the people who are in active pursuit of a free world, the brilliant, because they're impossible to ignore. That cannot be seen directly, especially in a world that is dull and gray. I'm your host, Jared Warren, joined by your co-host, Bellamy, and in the background, our sound engineer, Roy Burton. So, I guess uh, this week we're going to talk a little bit about mass shootings. We're going to talk about, uh, oh yeah, and the theme for the week is society which is basically the biggest possible subject and arguably the topic for every week. But I think this week we're going to be talking a little bit about um, uh, whether or not society is falling apart, as indicated by things like mass shootings. We're also going to talk... um, What was the motivation to talk about society in the first place?
1: So Aragorn's doing some subtle nagging right now, trying to demonstrate that he doesn't really agree with this topic, which was one that I chose (laughs) independently of him and that he's more or less going along with. And, yeah, I think uh, it'll probably be the first in, among many episodes that pick up this theme specifically, we'll probably just be talking about one aspect of it, and the reason that I wanted to talk about this was that I think there's very much a tendency in the North American anarchist milieu to be attracted to sort of the bad news stories, and to say, oh, look what's going on, this is what society is really like, or this is what civilization is really like, and... I think it tends to go along with the kind of regressivist view that things are just getting worse and worse and that there's a kind of social fragmentation or a psychic fragmentation. And so I just wanted to examine that issue a bit in the wake of the recent Oregon shooting and some news about shootings in general. But first, I want to do a bit of response to listeners. Listeners who um, were, were very excited about the idea of listeners asking Questions, comments, giving feedback, and someone went ahead and uh, took some time to write some provocations, questions, comments to us. That person is Lincoln Finch, who, among other activities, runs the or runs and writes the blog "Wildlife Musings and Fictions for the Nomadic in Spirit," which has a kind of anarcho-primitivist focus you might say, although I know that this person diverges in some ways from, um, what might be called the AP canon, and you can find that blog at lincolnfinch.wordpress.com. We'll link from the website. And so, among other things, Lincoln was asking us why we were hostile to anthropology, and Lincoln's deviating from the AP canon by saying, um that he does not take anthropology, the claims of anthropologists' ethnographies, as being hard facts, but instead interprets them as an ideal. And Lincoln writes, Anthropology could still be used in an interpretivist fashion. The idea would be, so what if no one ever lived like this? I want to. And Lincoln also said, that he doesn't understand why, quote, Y'all want animism from from primitives, but no primitives. Perhaps anything but the infrastructure is the idea. And goes on to say, quote, If you think anthropology is useless for making cultural comparison in terms of finding ones that are healthier than our own, then you should explain that on the podcast, because that level of skepticism doesn't make sense to primitivists. So we've been shrugging at accusations of model using all along, not understanding your side of things. I'm suspicious as to whether you keep your epistemic standard consistently between cases. So the provocation there being, why do you hold some sort of special hostility or skepticism toward anthropology? And why are you, I guess, either interested in or claiming to be animist, even though you are hostile to primitivism in general? Do you want to talk about that?
0: well i i mean i can only talk about this in pieces because this is a huge grab bag of accusations mostly based on perception rather than reality so some of these some of these topics are documented i think fairly well here's an initial response i don't find anthropology to be any more interesting in terms of being a model for future behavior than science fiction and so I would sort of respond to you by, to, to, to the assertion that anthropology is a very important uh, uh, reference for, for talking about models. I would refer, sort of respond back to you as to say, why is anthropology in the privileged position of, of providing this particular uh, role for you, for anthropologists in general? And, um, and I, my, my suspicion is that it's a sort of like, um, you know, different people are into different sorts of things. So, so you know, if, if you're a greeny type person and you've been inspired or influenced by anarcho-primitivists, then of course anthropology is, it, has an attraction to you as part of a whole canon or, or perhaps as part of an ideology. And, uh, um, and so I think that for some people, they, they read this book called The Bible, and that's the, the the book that they use that uh, that answers all the same questions that anthropology, as a as a academic discipline, answers for you. Now, of course, you're going to use the term anthropo- if you're going to use the term anthropology as as a different with a different uh, intention than talking about it as, as being an academic discipline. Then you're you're perhaps uh, uh, entering into what I would call the world of of ideology because. Anthropology is a discipline in the university, and all the anthropologists that are quoted at length by anarcho-primitivists are academic anthropologists. It's not uh, their their own their own field research. It's not um, uh, you know works in progress. It's not uh, anthropology from the moon. It's academics doing an- anthropological research within within the academy. So, um, so I guess two things sort of to that part of the question. One, question anthropology because it is what it is. If you're going to define it differently, then use a different word for it. Because I'm actually much more interested in, the, in this idea of an imagination exercise influenced by anthropology than I am in anthropology itself. Um, I don't necessarily believe it any more than I would anthropology, but that's but that's good. That's fine. Um, I think that there's probably something in here about... Um, Believing that people are capable of telling their own stories, that I think is important. I'd rather hear you tell your stories than hear yet another academic talk about theirs. The other point that's sort of separate is that there are multiple uh, uh, perspectives on this specific question. In other words, if we're looking for models for what our behavior should be in, in the future, we can draw from multiple sources. I mentioned the Bible. A lot of people draw from the Bible as their goal for the future um, there's people who are really into capitalism and who think that capitalism has yet to be achieved and so they draw entirely on on sources that that talk about these sort of topics and then finally I mentioned science fiction which is you know again an, an entire project that tries to imagine different worlds than the one that we live in now which sounds very much like the idealized anthropological project that isn't what I actually see people who um, uh, who talk about anthropology being this fantastic thing do that's only one out of like six questions so like, I'm not sure either. well they're really
1: just two main issues so I mean I think your reply would be that you're not holding a different epistemic standard then right? sure you're putting it on the same level as everything and I would agree I, I, um, I'm not actually sure where the perception of a really particular hostility to anthropology is coming from except that it's something that gets brought up a lot more you don't see a lot of anarchists saying look at the science fiction story isn't it great let's live that way it's you much more often except for Ursula Le Guin except for okay but I'm saying I encounter more people drawing on anthropology so if there's if that's being talked about more or seems like it's having a particular eye or brought down on it it's only because it gets brought up so much actually just to pause okay it's important to say I'm one of the editors of Blackseed sure and
0: in the first issue of Blackseed we stated that one of the projects of Blackseed was to be critical of anthropology okay it speaks to the to the fact that people who are really into anthropology are very sensitive to to to, to that uh, particular desire that they have that they're that they're as sensitive as they are to to what Blackseed said. In other words, um, uh, issue one and two both had critical pieces about anthropology; three, not so much. But um, what we're talking about is the fact that uh, the big names in AP. Totally reacted hostily to, to to AP being criticized. They saw it as personal attacks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I recently had a conversation with KT, who who basically said that that um, AP was was defined as as racist because of relationships of anthropology. And, and I, the only reason I mention that, which is which is absurd, the accusation is absurd. But the reason I mention that is because I personally am absolutely following the line of thinking that begins with Vine Deloria, and in in the book God Is Red, where the the essay is called Anthropologists and Other Friends, and it basically is an uh, it does accuse anthropologists of being racist, mm-hmm. and it's it's incontrovertible that anthropologists have have, have been uh, directly connected to racist acts against natives in North America Mm -hmm. and so that's the context in which that accusation was made Mm inside
1: yeah and for my own part I think I would reply by saying that the only particular ire I feel toward it as as one thing to draw on uh, well so first of all if it is just one thing to draw on great but often I've seen it take the form of the old Mott and Bailey fallacy where you put out a very strong statement and then once it's challenged pull back and qualify your statement, and then once the, accusi- or once the attack goes away, you come out strong again. So often I've seen it go something like, domestication is a cosmic change, it creates hierarchy, you're crossing you know, some kind of line that's written indelibly into the universe. We know from the anthropological record people without domestication were or are egalitarian anarchists who are peaceful, non-patriarchal, and we know this is true because we've spent time in the forest and contacted true wildness and so forth, and then when you try to attack that position, suddenly it turns into well, I'm just saying, we have something to learn from people that might have actually lived in an anarchist way and we can just draw on it as a model and then you go, okay, well, yeah, that's not unreasonable and then when you stop attacking, then it comes out strong again as the absolute and incontrovertible truth I actually have a little bit of a problem with that being described as a fallacy because I do think that there's something
0: to be said about uh, the difference the different rules that we all put in place when we're talking to an individual okay. versus when we're speaking generally.
1: Okay.
0: So I'm going to be softer when I talk to a person, especially if it's a person that I like, than I am when I'm speaking generally. Like, So I can say that I don't think that anthropology is removed from Vine Deloria's uh, crit- criticisms of it. Mm-hmm. At the same time, if you are a working anthropologist, I can, you, know, you can honestly say to me, and and one of the primitivists A APers did that that they've been very influenced by the work of Vine Deloria too. Their mm-hmm. their implication being that that they are no long, they're no longer touched by the racist uh, pedig- pedig- pedigree of anthropology. I would say that both are possible. Anthropology both has a racist history, and you, you're you an active engagement with that history. But I'm not sure you're separate from it, and so in that way, there, there is a there is a nuance there. You recognize that this criticism exists. I still think that the criticism is valid.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, I, I think the the fallacy exists in being slippery with the claims that you're making, depending on whether you feel you're being scrutinized. I, but I
0: think that the, we all do that.
1: Mm-hmm. Full of fallacies. <laughs> Yes. That's okay. (laughs) As far as the animism claim, I actually don't know where it's coming from. I'm not an animist. I've never claimed to be one, nor have I said that people should be animists. I I think my socialization, my analytic background, has pretty much precluded me from experiencing the world in that way, so I actually don't even know what's being referenced there.
0: Well, we did talk
1: about it. Right, but at no point was I saying people should be animists, so
0: what do you think that kind of, I mean, what, in reviewing that conversation, what do you think the claim that we made was?
1: I I mean, you were talking about it being a kind of um, way that one might exist in the world that you feel is not possible in this world. Hmm. Uh And you're agreeing with that? More or less, but I, I don't feel that I'm especially knowledgeable on the subject. I'm agreeing with it in the way that I might agree with any number of things someone says that sound reasonable on the face of things. Yeah, yeah. yeah I have no idea what they're talking about. Okay. It might have been a personal conversation with me. Oh,
0: uh, there you go. Okay. Um, but I can't recall the details. So. Okay. Okay. I mean, it, it's been on my mind because I just wrote an article for the newest Black Blackseat on the topic. Right, okay. So. There you go.
1: Teaser. Indeed. Okay, so should we go to the news? We exist to plug. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Have we answered all of those questions?
1: Yeah, I think so, more or less. Um, the the question is just: there's a suspicion whether we keep our epistemic standard consistently between cases. Oh, I hope not. <laughs> I mean, for, for you, would that actually be an issue? Not keeping my epistemic standard consistent, getting at the po- what the point that he's making, which is: are you everyone consistent? plays favorites. I think is are you consistent? Probably not.
0: I would I, I I'm honest when I say hopefully not. Hopefully not because I don't th- I think the consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. I I don't I don't value consistency as a as a high-value target.
1: Mhm. Mm-hmm. Cuz when you feel passion or attraction to something your standards change. Uh no, I think that that
0: that the maintenance and manicuring of, of consistency is is similar to the passion for maintaining a nice lawn
1: uh-huh. neurotic yeah I do think it's neurotic yeah. well I'm definitely neurotic so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> so, fair enough <laughs> so we in the news section are going to as I said be talking today about how it might be said that Society is breaking down. And I had a number of examples that I wanted to bring up, but Aragorn has told me I'm only allowed to bring up one. And that, <laughs> that is the mass shootings. So, the Washington Post recently put out an article talking about how a group on Reddit, I guess just a self electing group of people here, called, who call themselves Guns Are Cool, which is a sarcastic name, have been tracking mass shooting incidents this year. They defined a mass shooting, and the definition I think is important here as any single incident in which at least four people are shot, including the shooter. So not mm-hmm. necessarily killed, and importantly, not necessarily what we might think of as this sort of stereotypical mass shooting where the person that everyone thought was so normal and so nice suddenly mm-hmm. becomes violent. So it's it's more expansive definition than this, but it's basically a definition of episodes of extreme violence. And as of August 26th, so about a month and a half ago which was the 238th day of the year, there had been 247 mass shootings in the U.S., so there's more than one mass shooting per day. And we know that also somewhat recently the FBI released a report basically saying, yes, it is becoming more common. Uh-huh. And there was the the Oregon school shooter last week and there was a whole hubbub about sort of moral horror, you might say, where it appeared for a time that the Oregon shooter had posted on 4chan, the the online forum, uh, the night before, posting an image of a frog with a gun. I guess this frog is a meme thing, which I don't really understand. um, And this person made these cryptic comments that implied that they were going to go shoot up the school, and then the next day someone really did shoot up the school. So it was thought that this was the person. And the responses on the forum to this cryptic threat of shooting were just all kinds of wacky, where a, f- a small minority said don't do it, but <laughs> most of the people were basically saying do it, and they were using all the um, the pickup artist lingo of calling themselves betas. So beta being a, a, a sort of ineffectual man who doesn't you know do a lot of things with his penis, and opposed to the alphas who are seen as these you know basically dominant men. And they were calling it a beta uprising, so characterizing themselves in a certain way with relation to the patriarchy. And they were even putting up a little Elliot Roger memes. Elliot Roger being the shooter last year who posted all kinds of videos that wrote this huge manifesto, was a 22 year old man who had never kissed a woman, um, was obsessed with it tried to use the pickup artist techniques and failed, became more bitter, and then shot up a sorority. And they had images of Elliot Rogers saying, I want you for the Beta Uprising, like Uncle Sam. People on the forum gave advice about how to more effectively kill people, were saying things like, please be real. And it ended up this was not the shooter, but it still sort of put this light on, there's this kind of underbelly. And so one might say, where is the decency? What has happened to our society? That might be the way things go, moral decay, and...
0: Well, yeah, I definitely. I mean, let's unpack this in in general. There's a bunch of stuff in here that is just fucking fascinating. Mm -hmm. Before we talk about sort of unpacking what does society mean, Mm -hmm. because I'm not sure. Yeah. So one thing that I find that really pops out for me, I assume that everything in a forum like 4chan is bullshit. Right that nobody is actually serious about anything that they say. Right. It's an entire exercise of people who find the idea of tricking other people or of trolling right. to be entertaining, to be interesting, to be all the rest. And so to me, what's fascinating is to look at the mirror reflection of what that form thread looks like if you assume that everybody's lying. Right. Because it means that basically people are devoting incredible amounts of energy to their lies. hmm Including, you know, like, the beta uprising thing is fucking rich. Like, Mm -hmm. talk about a a memetically rich sort of declaration. Because there's a lot more people in the world who are betas than who are alphas. Mm -hmm. If you're really trying to, you know, understand people. Mm -hmm. And the idea of of a beta uprising where they basically are, are owning... The first step to a beta uprising is you have to own the fact that you're a beta. Right. Which, that's a brutal thing to, to sort of own in a world that absolutely unvalorizes you. Right. And then to sort of say, you're going to unite with other betas, which, again, little <laughs> contraindicated by what you are. And then finally is to say that we're going to have an uprising. What's the, what's the goal of a beta uprising? To become alphas?
1: To kill women was the implication. And, okay, so that's like... Yeah, that I and alphas, in. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, but so while this was, you could say it was some kind of satire, or I want to exist in such incredibly deep irony that I'm going to make this <laughs> Elliot Roger meme. But for Elliot Roger, it was absolutely real, right? That and part of it. The, did you read any of the manifesto? Yeah, yeah, oh, you did? Did. I did. I did. Yeah. <laughs> so, so for him, it, it, was it was killing women. It was about killing women and men. Um, a lot of it also was was very. Racist in orientation, where I mean, he would describe black men as animalistic and that sort of thing. And he basically describes the only happy time in his life was when he was a prepubescent boy playing with other boys, and he loved playing video games. Um, and then one day, one of his friends, as they were sort of coming of age, showed him pornography, and he was totally traumatized by it. Went home and wept, and talked about how disgusting he found what he had seen however he knew that to be a sort of proper man this is what he had to do. He had to have sex with women. And so he talks about being bullied by girls when he's sort of a preteen and then um, trying and trying and trying to have sex which he very much felt entitled to. Being rejected. Trying this pickup artist stuff. Still failed. And so and talked about the insane envy he felt for um for the rich kids that he was going to school with um actually i have a quote from him here he said wealth is one of the most important defining factors of self-worth and superiority i hated and envied all of those kids for being born into wealth while i had to struggle to find a way to claim wealth for myself i had to be ruthless and do whatever it takes to attain such wealth after all, it was my only hope of ever being worthy of getting a girlfriend and living the life of gratification that I desire. I mean, it's... <laughs> Pretty clear. You know, it reads, a, yeah, almost as self-parody, but it absolutely was not, and he eventually went on to say, I'm, I'm just going to, if I can't have what I want, then I'm going to destroy it for others. Yeah,
0: again, this, there's just so much to unpack here. <laughs> I, I, um, I guess just a meta for a second this is why people talk about this being the decay of society is because they're hearing a generation you know implied a generation of boys who are totally you know lost at sea yeah and and i can't see a path back from where this person is no to a and regular life age 22
1: at the right. time that he's writing it.
0: well and and uh i mean the thing i'll say bluntly I feel like on Facebook, I see at least a half dozen of these people who are pretty open about their misery, mm-hmm. and and it's so strange in the context of, you know, the dozens of people who I see who are absolutely acting as if their life is an incredible series of sexual adventures. <laughs> <laughs> you know that that that. And then another couple dozen people who basically are talking all the time about, they wouldn't put it this way, but basically how fucked up people are who come onto them
1: mm-hmm. all
0: the time. And so, you know, you, you see these three, these three different perspectives in, in, a, in a very, like, if you define the, the alphas, al- the
1: betas, and the property, right? Yeah, right.
0: Or, and the, who are angry about it. Right. And, and if, if, if that's what society is, well, good riddance. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I wish it ill. But um, uh, but this sort of angry young man thing, I think has actually been a common societal trope for as long as there's been mass culture.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it, it seems like the oldest story in the world, right? It's the... It, where I think patriarchy is very crudely and inadequately understood as the, the domination of women by men, but it's also the men who are rejected from inclusion in the patriarchy, right? The sort of non-man, the... You're you're nothing because you're not the the valuable thing that is to be acquired, and you're not the acquirer. You're just the remnants. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I so think it seems that, like that the angry young man must be as old as patriarchy, right? Right. I yeah, I I agree
0: with the working definition of patriarchy that basically sort of says it's a gendered way to describe how fucking shitty the world that we live is. Right. And, and so the the way the gender plays out is that the only true man has a very narrow definition
1: mm-hmm.
0: and um, yeah yeah it's it, it's fascinating to me though because I the, the story is really rich like in other words the, this person really they put it all on the line mm-hmm. in a way that the alphas never do right the alphas in general real men in this world don't have a rich inner life right yeah. <laughs> we don't and uh uh, and so this person actually had this really rich inner life and it might have been sick and twisted because right. you know, a good horror movie is sick and twisted. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a lot more interesting basically than hearing about famous people, but and yeah, anyways, um, I guess to, to to dig into this from the from the perspective of uh, to, to go a little further back to if prior to just talking about the beta uprising part, is um, you know we're, we're basically now three generations into understanding that the media is a simulacra
1: mm-hmm.
0: and um, you're and saying starting with the Society of the Spectacle or Baudrillard uh-huh. probably okay. more Okay, that's his terminology and whereas Guy was trying to talk about something bigger than that right? but um, and, and so to me one of the questions here is what's the evolution of that look like because, so, so, you know, 4chan is a set of people who are sort of playing with each other. Right. In these sort of reflected ways.
1: Right.
0: Us talking about 4chan, <laughs> and, and especially people who have no idea of the, of the, like, a lot of people who talk about 4chan don't get trolls. Mm-hmm. And I may be accused of a lot of things, but probably I cannot be accused of not understanding a troll. I am mm-hmm. um, perhaps a meta troll. But, but, the, but the thing that I really get is that you really need this reaction. And, and this is one of the few times that 4chan has gotten outside reaction since the change in 4chan. Which, uh, there was an ownership change that happened fairly by, within the last year. But the, there used to be a sort of single person who ran 4chan, and they were willing to be interviewed by the media... And that they sort of tried to expand 4chan to actually being a viable business operation, oh, really? and yeah, and they failed. Um, uh, their name was Moot. And, oh yeah, uh, okay. um, I didn't know this. Yeah, and, and so so there was a lot of talk about 4chan for a while, and, and sort of some of these topics. But this is the first time 4chan has been talked about in the, in the more mainstream outlets, as sort of touching the wire of what's happening today. In the past, 4chan was sort of an innovator in internet discourse. But this is actually a transition into, into talking about how 4chan is, you know, part of the vo- vocabulary of how the betas mm-hmm. live in the world. I think that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I, not, I don't necessarily have an end to it, but obviously I've been concerned about this question about what does internet discourse look like and how to, how to grapple with it intelligently because it, it is a different conversation about what, it, what society looks like in the information age. Right. That's very different than talking about it from the lens of patriarchy, which sort of we did before.
1: Yeah. We're yeah big, we're, we're,
0: did. What we're doing today is we're building a theory of society.
1: <laughs> it's not easy. It's <laughs> not easy. <laughs> it's thankless. <laughs> so, going off what you foreshadowed earlier when you were saying, if this is society, good riddance, rather than... Capitulating to the kind of mortal horror, where has the decency gone, what happened to society, and this is social fragmentation. I would say that Elliot Roger and those types are really our sort of canaries in the coal mine that pick up on the alienation and the patriarchy and, and just are more sensitive to it. I mean, the way he talks, his um affinity for the pickup artist way of perceiving the world, you see it come across in the videos and his manifesto, he has a deeply internalized sense of hierarchy. Misogyny, what, viewing women as property to be acquired, some sort of sign of social status, um, self-isolating atomization, incredible narcissism. He spends a lot of time talking about how magnificent he is and no one sees it. And, yeah, I mean, it just goes on and on. And so rather than um, saying society is going away, I would say, you know, this is just what society is, even if part of society is social atomization.
0: Yeah, I think it's worthwhile to think about this in the context of the fact that interpersonal violence as an aggregate has been decreasing in the, in the United States for decades hmm. and basically it's been dec- decreasing since the 70s <clears throat> and so there's a there's a certain way in which I, th- I feel like the way in which people are thinking about the issue is, is sort of bizarre so for instance obviously these um, school shootings and, and mass shootings are, are horrific but for people who have been mugged by gun, at gunpoint, that's a much more personal and um, intimate kind of experience. That a lot, you know, many, many more people have that experience than have, have uh, experienced of these mass shootings. And the fact that that has been on the decline, and sort of what has it taken? The mugging
1: has been on the decline. Absolutely.
0: Right. So, what has it taken for the society to shift in such a way that that's been the case? And what similar? but different shift has there been for these mass shootings to sort of become, to, to be on the incline. The the further thing I would say is sort of the, there's sort of a anarchist concept in here that's sort of interesting, which, which is the difference between the sort of interpersonal violence, say of mugging or of fights on the street, um, versus the impersonal violence that's happening in the context of you going to a society a societal institution like school or work and uh, and and possibly being in more danger mm-hmm. doing doing that that's to me there's a, some sociology in there that, that's very interesting
1: yeah and th- there are a lot of different ways to come at it I mean with the decline of the sort of petty crime that you described you could say that that's the success of certain societal disciplinary measures of keeping people in their social role, keeping them in their class, not having cross-class violence or intra inter-class violence. And then at the same time, although there is a sense in which the mass shootings are impersonal and that I think the particular people being killed often are, are somewhat random, they are in a sense deeply personal that the person almost always comes to, as you said, to inflict violence on the institution that is disciplining them and of course an institution can't actually be attacked so instead you just attack the humans that happen to be in it at that Absolutely. moment. Absolutely. Well, yeah, the the motivation for the the there's two ways to
0: talk about the decline in violence that's happened in the US. So there's the broken windows right theory option which is sort yeah. of as, as as policing has has transformed its gaze to basically uh, see its see its role primarily as smoothing out any any uh, nail that sticks up, right. um, then then the whole social order has shifted in the direction of, of these uh, smooth spots. That's sort of the, 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 the if you buy what the police are thinking about their right. about their own activity. And then I think it's worthwhile to think about um, uh, another very normative liberal response to this. But free economics uh, has a whole piece where they talk about this. So that it's actually worthwhile for us to talk about it in general. But it basically says that the demographics are actually responsible for the, 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 the change of interpersonal violence and, and the, the lowering of it. It basically makes some argument about how the baby boomer generation was at... Well, there was a certain sort of thing that happened in the 70s where, where, where there were so many of them, and when their career... When, when they reached their, the, the point in their life where they were at their career you know upturn. You know, when you make more money in your thirties or whatever, uh, that that actually is is much more uh, what you can point to is is how the transformation happened. And I'm um, so anyway, uh, just saying that there were, there
1: was less of a concentration of poor people
0: in a lot of uh, yeah, or or people whose economics were changing in such a direction that interpersonal violence was no longer rewarding. Mm,
1: mm-hmm. But
0: but I, I I think it's worthwhile to. to to just point people in the direction of Freakonomics and and broken windows theory, rather than to, for me to make the argument sure, that sure. I haven't listened to in several years. And, sure. Sure. Um, uh, the the point is is that there is a counter argument to the police to to the policing model, you know, because obviously anarchists aren't necessarily thinking about these things in more detail because we think it's much more important to talk about campus rape and uh, <laughs> and Ebola. Um, <laughs>
1: i being made fun of right now. That's oh,
0: not, oh, that's funny that you think it's about you.
1: I, well, I, I talked about the piece, the agency piece on Ebola for a long time. Oh, uh, yeah. On periodical Writing. But, but to criticize it, yeah. But I was making yes. fun of agency, um, not no, you. No, no, yeah. It's not all about you, just, kid. Narcissism, <laughs> coupled with low self-esteem. <laughs> Made um,
0: <Beta> uprising. <laughs> oh, I just got punched in the face.
1: <laughs> so now that we're almost two-thirds of the way in, we should probably define society. I've, I've heard you say that you are uh, partially responsible for popularizing the term among anarchists. Well, I, I, w- I mean,
0: I can take partial credit because I published the book Enemies of Society. Mm-hmm. And the book Enemies of Society's definition of society more or less is mass society. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a way of talking about mass society that doesn't have the anti-civ uh, biases. Mm-hmm. So it sort of doesn't just say it's People jammed in the cities, or it's this thing destroying the earth. Instead, the emphasis is social, mm-hmm. and so um, so an anthropologist would refer to a banned society, mm-hmm. and so that's in an anthropologist's gaze that's society, right? And an anarchist would say, uh, like a red anarchist would say, society is a good thing. We want we want more society, not the society that we have now. But it's society itself is a is a is a net positive, right? what the book Enemies of Society sort of oriented itself towards, which I more or less agree with, is that society is any social aggregate that enforces its values on on the people who had no say in the matter. Yeah. Um, So, obviously, an individualist takes this definition to its extreme and says, destroy all society, there's only me. Right. I would say... That destroying society will be a happy byproduct of generalized happiness, <laughs> and and I, I, it is of no
1: concern to me w- w- in what way you express that happiness. Sure. Yeah, I think that that's a that's a pretty good working definition. That, um, as you said, that sort of commonplace definition would be just any group of people living together mm-hmm. in relative stability, and having certain cultural norms, social mores, and I think the anarchist understanding, the one that you laid out as a good one, I would say add to it by saying it's people existing with a certain set of reifications that impose a kind of group morality in the way that you expressed, and then say, yeah, large enough, maybe mass society would be large enough that you don't have um, stable social relationships, and many of the people with whom you interact with on a daily basis are strangers yeah so I think the mass anonymity is an important part of that mm-hmm. and especially when I look at these people doing the shootings, it's hard not to believe that w- at least one factor causally is that we just have so many commodified interactions with strangers that are really impersonal
0: I mean a lot of people when they when they try to talk about a big topic, they basically want to start the conversation out with a definition and then' what was
1: happening and then spend the
0: rest of the time sort of. Talking about um, uh, how another person is flawed because they're not working within the definition that you've already established, and so so I'm a little hostile towards making definitions of big loaded words because to the extent to which I'm willing to do it, like I have, it's a frame of reference in which we we can sort of talk about you know what we're for and against or or ho- how to achieve it, but the definition itself to me doesn't feel that important. Mm-hmm. I think we we, like, you've added some more specificity, which is which is great and and helps your understanding. The specificity okay. for me feels dangerous because um, it restricts the scope of the conversation. For me, for me. Uh-huh. But uh, but but let's let's press on. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, maybe it would be interesting then for a minute to talk about what it means to say there is no society, which Thatcher right. famously said, which some anarchists might feel some sensitivity to, and talk about why those two very different parties might both feel this way.
0: Yeah, I mean from my perspective, what I feel like she was referring to was the same thing that Nietzsche was referring to when he referred to the nihilism that, that, society, that civilization was coming to, and the, the, the nihilism that he was referring to was sort of when you've done as much as you can with a value set, what does it look like when you abandon that value set, or, or what yeah. what does the end of a value set look like? And to me, that's the exact same thing that Margaret Thatcher was saying. And I think correctly. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I can't remember his name is like Fukusama. The, the end of history. Yeah,
1: I think it's Fukuyama.
0: Fukuyama. Yeah. I, I think that these, like, these, all of these concepts are referred to as being these conservative concepts. And this is one of the reasons why I feel like this is where post-left anarchism never went that I felt like would have been a lot more intellectually interesting was to sort of say, rather than say Fukuyama's, you know, a reactionary, which politically he is, mm-hmm. to say, what is it in this concept that actually is working for us? Because I more or less think that everyone has agreed at this point with Fukuyama's central conceit in the end of history, which is that neoliberal capitalism has, has won the day. Right. And, and that's really what Margaret Thatcher was, you know, was also saying with, with, with a different orientation. And so if, if neoliberal capitalism has won the day, then history, if we define history in such a way that, that it is about how humans have tr- transformed and how social orders have transformed, history is over.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, just to flesh it out in case people aren't familiar, the reason that he's being called a reactionary is he was saying, this is a really good thing. I mean, he was putting it completely sure. in positive terms. He wasn't just being descriptive. He was saying, "We won. Democracy and capitalism have won. This is how the world's going to be. If we look at all the evidence, as saying it's only spreading. People want this. Yeah, you know, there's right. no place to go from
0: here. And and the the problem that the left has with with you know all this or, or or the the sort of s- so uh, sparkly bits that they always get attracted to is exactly the like like all the data that, that was the first half of the book may be correct <laughs> but they but they draw these conclusions and they then entirely focus on the conclusions mm-hmm. but i think that the that the you know if you can if you demonstrate the assertion that neoliberal capitalism has has dominated all resistors to its to its view i think that's a really deep uh, provocation that that we have to think meaningfully about if we're going to talk about sort of what's next for those who absolutely, you know,
1: are revulsed by, by this conclusion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Thatcher's understanding of it also was that uh, there's no essential social fabric. There are just atomized actors that engage in market relationships. So it's actually very much in accordance with certain libertarians like Nozick, who would say, yeah, that is how it is, and why shouldn't it be? Because then everyone has total freedom you don't have to adhere to cultural mores you just have to obey the law basically and ideally the law is just there to regulate the market by enforcing deals yeah. by being an arbitrator i mean of course such a huge
0: caveat that is but but even leaving that aside the you know the question for an anarchist is how i think that this is a fascinating conversation for anarchists is it it's part of the reason why anarchists have become so malice in orientation, <laughs> where they basically believe that that they basically believe that what we just said was true, except for by those who are suffering under the existing order. And so the anarchist imagination tends to say, everybody, we accept that everybody are these independent social actors, and that that the that the the, the, the citizen is the consumer. Mm-hmm. But those people who don't get to consume much or don't get to consume the things that they would like to consume, they are now the active political agent, Mm -hmm. and we must organize them, assuming that they also understand the Nozick argument and, and basically want to be something that they're not and are very angry about it. And this conceit is totally wrong.
1: Yeah, and part of what I find really revolting about that kind of orientation, which you might call sort of the wholesale privilege theory. I mean, there are aspects of privilege theory that I completely agree with, but there are aspects of the way it's implemented that are revolting to me, one of which is this: there's this kind of sometimes implicit, sometimes explicit seeding that says yeah, for the, the middle class and up, it really is good. And the problem <laughs> is that that people on the bottom of the social ladder don't have those nice things and nice life mm. that the people on the upper end do. And I just I think <laughs> it's disgusting. I mean, it's a complete capitulation to the idea of just commodity in general. Yeah. I mean, especially now that we're in this in this era
0: where there has long since been enough for everybody. Right. Well, today, when we were talking about any of these issues, we're not talking about... Uh, people starving. Clearly, there are still people starving, especially outside of the U.S. But, and we were having this conversation uh, off mic a little while ago. But my assertion would be that the number of people who are starving in the U.S. is a very it's a very solvable number mm-hmm. if, if you were just to, to accept certain socialist measures or whatever. Right. But the issue is actually um, the, the autonomous Marxists call it precarity. Right. But but. but the fundamental experience that most people have, whether they're coming from upper-middle-class backgrounds or they are very poor, is insecurity. Mm -hmm. Insecurity about when they're going to get kicked out of their house. Like, think about how many wealthy people we know who live in rented apartments in in the Bay Area who actually could be kicked on the street in a month or two. Because of rent hikes. Because of the nature of rent hikes and the nature of of how people are being treated by, by landowners yeah um, um in other words it's it's the insecurity that's actually the the dominant order rather than the actual material lack and insecurity is a, is a existential condition mm-hmm. it can't be solved by throwing like it's an unsolvable problem but it but it sort of only can exist now that we live in this neo neoliberal capitalist system that that
1: is universal mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember uh, there was something in it, the last issue of Ajota that the sort of the dominant affect now is anxiety. And they were saying before it was things like you know, depression or despair, and now yeah. it's anxiety. And so it's a way to, to really keep the squeeze on and make sure that there's always a sense of scarcity, even in the midst of plenty. Yeah. yeah.
0: Anyways, we got here through a different direction which is to talk <laughs> about society, and... Um, uh, so for for me, from my perspective, I, I love this conversation about society because it doesn't have the burdens that, that other um, big words have. Like civilization? So, like civilization, like capitalism, mm-hmm. um, like totalitarianism, like fascism. In right. other words, one can describe the existing order in a variety of terms that are equally inaccurate. Mm-hmm. And um, the thing I love about the society definition is it's aspirational, because it basically, from my perspective, I would say that it includes civilization, it includes capitalism. capitalism. But, but I'm not so married to it that, like, I'm a defender of being anti-society above all. That's, that's utterly ridiculous, and that's another thing I
1: like about society in particular. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because the discussion is bottomless?
0: <laughs> yeah, and therefore it's it's harder f- to have an ideological mm-hmm. uh, stand stand on. I mean, one of the things I really liked uh, the introduction to the SI anthology from Ken Nabb. Ken Nabb says this thing that I think is great, where he basically implies for many people this diff- this reading is difficult. He sort of says, yeah, many people don't like the jargon in the in the, in the text, and that's a good thing. That basically, to some extent. The way in which the SI were describing their ideas was intended to be obscure because as, as a way of, of making it a, um, a journey to, to reach their ideas. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I absolutely took this as a call to arms to spend the next five years of my life being ready to take that journey. And it took me that long to really understand what was being said in the SI anthology. But... Um, uh and i and I think that that 's one of my one of my biggest hesitations about the big terms that we use in our circles, like civilization um and like capitalism, because you know for me capitalism you just can 't talk about capitalism as a radical without sort of accepting marx mm-hmm. and i I am cautious about that to say the least I also don 't like the way in which civilization is 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 being bandied about with certain owners
1: mm-hmm. yeah i, I interested in pressing you on that slightly because I most of the time have associated myself with anti-civilization as a way of more or less describing my position without becoming too entrenched in a particular prescription about what ought to be done and the reason I find it useful is that I actually feel there's a sense in which it subsumes society because you, you are talking about the social roles and and the kind of reified activity that goes along with it and the division of labor, but you're also talking about certain kinds of infrastructure that I think are not captured by the term society so much. And so agricultural infrastructure, transportational infrastructure, industrial mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. such. And so it, it's interesting that, to me that you find an inadequate term, especially when you are putting out a an explicitly green anarchist journal. Well, I think that... That, that, I... that does use the term.
0: Sure, no. Yeah. Uh, but I... I guess we're sort of talking about different things I, I, I agree with you that civilization has a materialist aspect to it that yes. society does not, but that materialist uh, implication would not exist if it were not for society. in other words, society came first mm-hmm. and then and then and then landed up in, and then ended up in cities, sure, and then okay. had to construct those cities yeah. but but it, again the, the 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 strength of society begins in the definition that we used earlier and, and you know, my sort of puritanical position about it. <laughs> and, and mostly it comes from the impossibility of des- destroying society. And that's one of the things I, I find, for me, something that becomes an ideology when people actually believe it's possible to mm-hmm. do it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you believe it's possible to destroy capitalism and then you're going to argue online Odd infinatum with people <laughs> about how exactly to do it Yeah, and so civilization is beginning to suffer that same sort of burden where like as if there is some person who has read enough Paul Shepard and enough John Zerzan that they now have they, they now come back to the internet and are an expert in destroying civilization That's that to me is utterly ridiculous mm-hmm. and so I, I love the, the the sensibility of the enemy of society which I don't actually feel all that many people have that sensibility in the context of these more um, plausible
1: mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: uh, formations.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, there are a few different directions we could go. I'm mm-hmm. not sure. One of them being, so what does it mean to be anti-social or anti-society in one's orientation? Well, are, they, are those two the same thing? Um, I've... I mean, I think antisocial has more baggage associated with it. Yeah, it implies sure. criminality, yeah. it implies mental illness. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, I have seen people use the term antisocial anarchists, so mm-hmm. but, which right. is probably partially a, a kind of angry response to bookchin. Right.
0: Right. Yeah, actually, uh, uh, I was recently engaging with somebody who, you know, sort of insisted on calling their perspective a social anarchist perspective. Right. Because. While I am hostile to society, along the lines I've already described, I would say that I am generally a social person. Social person. And yeah. so the idea that I no longer have access to being, to being a social person because I'm not going to call myself a social anarchist, because for me that has all these implications that are really different.
1: The anti-social anarchists just stay in their room all the time if they're not out doing crime. <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> right. Or shaking their fists at a world <laughs> gone mad.
0: What? Um, but that said, I, you know, I mean, clearly, I would, by other people's definitions, I'd be called an anti-social anarchist, mm-hmm. as I hold my fucking dagger. Yeah, he, he keeps taking <laughs> out a knife for some reason. <laughs> it's not really clear why. Um, uh, so, the, so, uh, sorry to revert back to the question rather than the semantics. What was the question again?
1: So, what does it mean to be anti-society in one's anarchism? And I would say, for me, it means to, to implicate in your critique also the idea of social roles, socially enforced morality, mm. um, compulsory division of labor, these sorts of things that are, you might say, pre-civilization and just basic functions of, of mass, and the insistence on face-to-face personal community, not mass anonymity. And I'm very sensitive to these ideas about Dunbar's number, where, you know, what, how many healthy, stable social relationships can someone really have, and Dunbar seems to really fixate on the number 150, which Mm. seems kind of arbitrary, but something on that scale seems to me what healthy community would be, because you would have some real personal engagement with the people with whom you did subsistence activity.
0: Yeah, I'd be remiss to not um, mention Bolo Bolo in this context. Right. Which uh, Bolo Bolo more or less borrows from a version of Native America that sort of differentiates between the band and the tribe. Sort of says the tribe should be about 500, mm-hmm. and the the band is more of like a household size, mm-hmm. um, you know, which could be five and it could be 15, but mm-hmm. isn't much probably isn't much larger than that. And Bolo Bolo basically says that the world should be filled with bolos, which are the size of a tribe. Yeah. And. Um, uh, and that your social sphere makes sense at five hundred, where you don't necessarily know everybody, but you recognize everybody. Yeah. And then, then the other aspect of how many meaningful social relationships doesn't matter as much in that context. But yeah, yeah. but it it exi- The real motivation of the Bola bolo number, which you know we would we would desire from native uh, cultures, is that the number five hundred looks like about the number where you can. Have resources and not have an economy
1: mm-hmm.
0: and and for me that's ultimately a, a, a very important uh, question mm-hmm. um, Now, obviously th- this becomes a semantic thing for a lot of people because they're going to define economy in a,
1: you know in well, such some a way people are going to say uh, any activity would that produces goods and services that are traded is economy. Yeah. And luckily, those people are going to be annihilated during the revolution, <laughs> so we won't have to argue with them afterwards. It's
0: just a time-saving pro- you know, problem. Yeah. <laughs> There's going to be a questionnaire when when people get, start to get lined up against the wall. But <laughs> define economy. <laughs>
1: well, <laughs> um, the. Uh,
0: you know, what's interesting is I actually haven't thought about this problem even though I, I do think it's a kind of an important one. There's something missing to me about... Like, so this week there was this interview on John's show, Anarchy Radio. Yeah, which I haven't heard yet, but... It's basically... It's between Kevin John and this person named Urban Scout. Right. Who they sort of tortured away from AP um, almost a decade ago. And... Um, and so he sort of, a decade later, comes back and kind of apologizes to them, especially around Derek Jensen, who Urban Scout stood with Derek for a long time. Oh, really? long And than, than <laughs> yeah. John and Kevin did. Wow. And so he sort of apologizes to them, I think, about that in particular. But the main thing that was interesting to me about the conversation was that Urban Scout, out of the three of them, seemed to be the person most dedicated to a practice of anti-civilization to an anti-civilization practice, and Just in learning
1: in, skills,
0: more more than learning skills, teaching skills, right? Like like th- they were very involved with sort of establishing a lifestyle of anti-civilization practice,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which you can d- absolutely criticize how he has chosen to do that, which is, includes like highly public. I believe there might be money exchanged, um, mm-hmm. although no, although a nominal amount. Um, what they all shared in common was that the modern practic- practitioners of feral skills—they were charging way too much. They mm-hmm. all agreed to s- sort of that, and and to a concern about their ideas becoming mainstreamed by these, you know, these yeah. people who charge too much. But, but the this this idea that um, in the conversation that for me really stood out was I sort of empathized and, and was so- somewhat more interested in learning about what urban scouts about just because they were being practical mm-hmm. in, in in the in the way that we're talking about what would an anti-social or an anti-society type practice look like I think partially what what it would look like for me would not be so focused on on the the critical side and being a bit more focused on um something you can touch
1: mm-hmm.
0: but I don't actually necessarily have like an answer to that question now it's it's something I'm going to go back into the laboratory, and uh, and start thinking about. Mm-hmm. But but maybe one of the reasons why I haven't is because I'm a lot less enamored with creating an ideology called an anti society anarchism, and making sure a bunch of people ten point program a ten point program yeah, and um, one dumpster dive, and I <laughs> and I'm not necessarily that excited about you know coming out with the document that's that's the manifesto of this mm-hmm. as a as a, a way to work through these ideas. Like I actually think that, that these ideas coming to you after you have gone through a Marxist phase, after you've gone through an anti-Siv phase, it might be it might be a requirement that you have to go through these phases where you've truly thought through these implications that at this point I don't agree with to come to this different perspective.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why are you I'm just laugh- I'm laughing for a number of reasons. Um, just because it, it sounds very much like the Nietzschean, like through the in the genealogy of morality, you have to go through the morality to come back out on the other side as the Ubermensch. And uh, I also think it's funny because I am often taunted for wanting to do something that is more something I can touch and feel in an anti sub direction, which I think we'll talk about at some point on the show. Um, I also just want to put in a quick note that uh, I did say to someone that we were going to talk about egalitarianism in this topic because I made in Internet world some comment about how I'm not an egalitarian and I don't think that's part of anarchism and and was asked to explain that and I'll do that at some point on the show. Yeah, that's a big one. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, it didn't I, really fit with the theme. so that's true. And I, I mean, I'll, I'll double down when, when we do
0: it because, uh, I mean, I think that it's... I think that's a very interesting question. Mm-hmm. And we're basically
1: out of time. Yeah, which is why I put in some word vomit at the end there. So thanks for listening to The Brilliant. Um, housekeeping-wise, we should probably say, once again, you can email at the brilliant at thebrilliant.org. And, yeah, you can you can do that. Yeah, talk you to can. you soon. <laughs> and
0: uh, uh, obviously our URL, which you probably have reached, if you I've have reached been. this podcast, yeah. is thebrilliant.org. And this is Eric Horn. that's Bellamy, and Roy Burton is in the background. Thanks a lot.